Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll recognize there's something just slightly different about that introduction phrase. And I usually say we're different women come together to talk about the Word of God. But this time I'm saying different people because this season we're going to have a few more men on our podcast, and I'm looking forward to what they will add to our conversation. This is our first episode in the new season, and we're going to be talking about the book of John and what it means for our lives to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining my co-host Aaron and me in conversation today is Dr. Mike Phillips. And Dr. Phillips is one of our pastors here at FPC. He recently taught an overview of John at our churchwide Bible study kickoff, and we're glad to have him with us today to continue sharing his thoughts on a book of the Bible he knows and loves well. But before we get into John, we'd like to take a few minutes to give our listeners a chance to get to know you, Dr. Mike Phillips, and I'm going to refer to you as Mike a little bit better. So Good, good. Good, good. That's okay with you? That's okay I can with refer me. to you as Mike? Please. Okay. All right. Well, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about your family? Well, on the front side of my family, my mother is still alive, and uh, I have two younger sisters. And uh, then in my own nuclear family, I've been married to my wife, Julie, for many, many years. And we have three grown children who are spread out across South Carolina. So two of them live in Charleston. One lives in Greenville. We have a couple of grandchildren that live in the Charleston area. So that's uh, most most of my family. We know and love Julie well. We've had her on the podcast before. Listeners, if you remember, Julie Phillips spoke with us on the Psalms. And so uh, we know she's your better half, Mike, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, how about when did you first realize um, that you love to preach and to teach? Well, I I think it probably goes back to when I was a very, very young boy. My paternal grandfather was a Baptist pastor. And so spending time with him and going to church um, was a unique experience for a five, six, seven, eight-year-old young boy. And so I think that seed was probably planted then. Um, Through high school, I was very active, preached some in my youth group, that sort of thing. Actually, this is uh, one of those factoids. I was actually uh, singing in a gospel group, and we traveled around to different churches, and we sang and gave altar calls, all that sort of thing. And and then I think... um, Later on in my 30s, it really began to settle on me that that's, that was something that God was calling me to do. And I left my work uh, with Coca-Cola and decided to go to seminary. And here we are. It's a big switch from working at Coca-Cola. I should say so. To preaching in the pulpit. <laughs> that's true. It's interesting. Well, it, it, I'm still selling something. It's just a very different kind of a product. <laughs> a better product. <laughs> that's right. right. It does more than taste great. That's exactly right. All right. Well, talking about things that taste great, our next question was, what's one luxury that you would have a hard time going without? You know, I, I had trouble thinking through that question. Um, but I, I think for me, and part of this is my, my mother who... Uh, had a stroke uh, about 14 months ago, and she has been uh, limited in what she could do. And I think as I've been processing that over the last number of months, I realized how much I loved traveling. And she cannot travel now. And so I've just been processing, working my way through that and thinking, that is a luxury. 
that I can go to North Georgia over the holidays and spend time there or go to Charleston and, and see our kids and grandchildren. And I just take those things for granted. But because of my experience with her, um, it really has come to be a luxury for me that I would – it's hard for me to imagine that I wouldn't be able to do that. But many of us in our life, when we hit a certain point, we're not able to do that anymore. I work with some older ladies teaching a fitness class, and it's always been so good for me to do that because when I'm with them, I recognize how important basic movement is. And so the things that maybe you take for granted when you're young and you can do various things, you realize I'd really have a hard time going without that in life. And just to see your mom um, having in some ways to do without makes you appreciate So who have been some of the inspirational people, authors or teachers in your life? Well, I sort of categorize these into two different groups. One, sort of the uh, authors, uh, teachers that uh, have been impactful in my life. uh, Augustine is huge. His his Confessions book was life and has been life transforming for me. And I just appreciate so much uh, his journey because his journey parallels mine in some ways. Uh, I'm a big fan of N.T. Wright, which, you know, he's not always a big fan in Presbyterian circles, but uh, I just love the way he thinks um, about uh, spirituality and about faith and about the gospel. So he has been uh, influential in my life. And um, and I would say D.A. Carson is another seminal guy. I, I, I've been to see him a number of times, and I just never tire of hearing him. I never tire of reading uh, what, whatever he has written. On the other side, I would say uh, the dean that I had in seminary, which was many, many, many years ago, John Rogers, and he just died a couple of months ago, uh, has been very seminal for me. He preached at my uh, ordination when I was in the Episcopal Church. Um, he was a professor for me. He was the president and dean of our seminary, just an extremely godly man, and I, I just learned so much uh, from him. Very thankful for him. Uh, I'm also thankful for Billy Graham, not so much for what he did, but for how he did it. For so many years, he he was faithful to the Word of God and true to his family. You know, I know he was away a lot, but he, he was committed. And in a day and age when we see, even in ministry, so many people fall from grace, just his steadfastness and his faithfulness and God's faithfulness to him is um, is a bright light for me. Well, you know, that impacted me, too, because my college roommate was Billy Graham's granddaughter, actually. Wow. And, yeah, really? I know. Yeah. And it was so evident to me, rooming with her, just how much respect she had for her grandfather and how much love she had for him and her mother had for him. And you're right. For someone who was traveling the way he was, who was sought after the way he was, who was a public figure the way he was, to have maintained that love and respect within his own family is such a testimony to to what you're saying. And I got to give a little shout out to D.A. Carson as well, just because I've been doing this daily Bible reading off the Gospel Coalition that they send uh, to my email. Love it. And it's a read through the Bible in the year, and they have a little commentary from him on different sections each day. So I did not have much exposure to him before I started doing this, and I've been reading him every day. I'm appreciating. Mm -hmm. Definitely. All right. I appreciate hearing all those details from you, Mike. It's so fun to just get to know you in a different level there. Um, We're going to start off with our first things, first question. And we want to know, Mike, what was the first car that you drove or owned? Here you go. It was a 1968 327 
burnt orange Camaro wow. with a black interior. That feels special for maybe, a first car. Yeah, well, it was special, and it was maybe simulated leather, but it was really Nogahide. <laughs> so I mean, it was it, it was uh, not all that comfortable, but it was a ride, and I felt like I really was something when I drove that three speed. It was just great. I think it sounds like you still feel like you're something that you used to drive. <laughs> you described that car. And then it was in 1968. What year did you get it? I got it in 1971. So it was relatively new. I like that. Mine is very sad. <laughs> thank, thank you to my very sweet parents who paid for this car. I'm going to have to say that little caveat out front. But, you know, I like things that are pretty, like most people. Or if I can't afford the pretty thing, I want it to be like fun or unique or just something special, some pizzazz. But my first car was a 1988 taupe gray Honda Civic, the ugliest car on the face (laughs) of the planet. It was so ugly. It got great gas mileage. That was its, you know, only good thing. My best friend, we, you know, come up through all of our I've known her my whole life still keep in touch with her dear friend she called it Ishmael the charging bull <laughs> right really? it had a very angular nose to it <laughs> it was a very special not attractive car google that one so was it manual or was it it was automatic? a it was an automatic and I think I, my parents had taken my brother away to go to college at UGA they came home and they're like we bought this from one of the I don't know, students that was in a graduate program. It's a great, reliable car. And I'm like, oh, but it's so ugly. <laughs> How long did it last for you? Was it reliable? Um, it did. I drove it two years in high school. And then my little brother drove it another couple years. And I think by the time he was done with it, it was, it was done. It was a rest in peace situation. Mind you, I got this car in the year 2000. So my car was not three or four years old. My car was a teenager when I got it. Well, I'm going to have to say as a mom of teenage boys that I think that their first cars should be old and ugly. Yeah. Personally, because they make them ugly just by the matter of their, at least mine do, possession. They um, are not exceptionally careful with them. That's true. But so this is the real kicker. My brother had a CJ5, which is like a Wrangler kind of vehicle. It was red. It was stick shift. It was really cool. Like a really, it was probably more of a boyish car, but I could not get the stick shift thing down. Like, and it was geared funny or something. I don't, or maybe I was incompetent, probably. But my parents sold it and got me, got and me got the you the bull, got me the charging bull. <laughs> I went from like a cool Wrangler fun teenage car to the Civic. So, oh man. Well, I drove clunkers all growing up, and they weren't even mine. My family, we drove clunkers, hand-me-down clunkers, and we've got some really pretty fascinating stories about those. One of my favorites was my dad's big, functional, not cool pickup truck that could survive anything. And I did think that that was kind of fun to drive. I felt like I had a little bit of, uh, not pizzazz, but, you know, kind of power (laughs) driving that thing around. Uh, But the first car I actually owned was... I want to say after college, and it was a Ford Taurus, and it was gray, and I don't even remember what year it was, but I do remember when I sold that thing, it was in such bad condition that at that point, I was married to John. We hadn't been married long, and I put an ad in the newspaper, and somebody took me up on it, and John (laughs) met them in a dark Walmart parking lot, (laughs) let him drive the thing around a couple times, was embarrassed that the headlights were barely bright enough to see, and just pretty much wanted to say, you just take it and go. He felt so bad (laughs) taking the money. Donated to NPR or something. Yeah, yeah. It was was ready to be sold by the time we got there so anyway i know cars have a lot of funny uh stories attached to them and a lot of good times and 
and a lot of difficult times, but they, they take us places, they do. right? Point A to B, that's all. And they all. are important in that way. Well, uh, what do cars have to do with our first episode in the book of John? Probably not really much. <laughs> cars transport us to where we need to go. And John is the author of this gospel, is transporting, bringing us to the good news of Jesus Christ. And John, if you do not know this, was a disciple of Jesus. He identifies himself as one who Jesus loved. And he is very clear about his intention in writing this gospel. It's so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we can have life in his name. And that's what John sets out to do in this book. He wants to reveal Jesus to his readers. So we are excited to dive into John this season, using two books to help in our study of John. One is simply entitled John, a 12-week study by Justin Buzzard, and it is edited by J.I. Packer. And the other one is entitled Come and See, and it is put out by the Daily Grace Project. And if you intend to listen to this full season of our podcast, which we hope you do, and you do not have one of these two books, you might want to consider getting them and following along with us. So, Mike, as we get into John, this is really an intro to the book of John as a whole. Why don't you tell us what you think is unique about studying one of the Gospels and John in particular? Well, that could take the whole podcast and then some, because John uh, is so unique, the Gospel of John. Uh, the letters in Revelation as well, but but his Gospel uh, is has some unique features to it that are unlike any, of, certainly any of the other Gospels, and unlike any of the other New Testament writings. I mean, first of all, you mentioned the purpose that he gives in chapter 20 of the book. Uh, the other synoptic gospels don't really address that, but he wants us to know uh, what he's doing, what he's telling us, why he's telling us, and what he wants in the outcome of that, um, that we have life in his name. That's that's the end game for John. Everything else will point toward that. All of the signs point to that. Uh, all of the I am statements are, are basically discourses or teachings that uh, fortify that idea. So uh, it really is the overarching theme. Uh, I'd also say that I really wanted to look at it in terms of the Cana cycle and the festival cycle in the first 10 chapters uh, because of the way uh, John has written his book and the literary style that he uses. It, it just makes a lot of sense. I mean, you can say it's the book of signs, the first 10 chapters, and then the book of glory, the last uh 11 chapters. You, you can break it up that way as well. But I just thought it was so interesting for me and unique to to watch the way he uh, capstones uh, this Cana cycle where Jesus goes into Cana, he leaves Cana, he goes to Jerusalem, comes back to Cana, and uh, he's just all over the place. And sometimes that is in sequence chronologically, sometimes it's not. It's depending on what John is trying to get across to his readers. And so he's not as interested as it's just one fact after another that are all in order. Uh, for John, it's about the message. How can I how can I tell them enough about Jesus and and the connections that are there with the people that he has met, what he has done with those people, the relationships he's developed, um, the conflict that he finds himself in? How can I tell them enough about those things that they will want to to know more about him, to have a deeper walk, a deeper relationship with him so that they can have life uh, in his name. So it, it is from beginning, the prologue. I mean, just, I mean, you think about it. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1. Uh, 
uh, you, you usually think about John and you say, well, he doesn't say anything about the birth of Jesus. He doesn't really start at the beginning. Well, yes, he does. He starts in a different way than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but he still starts at the beginning. I mean, he says it in the prologue, and he is intentionally pointing back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. And so he's drawing all of that together for us, uh, the reader, to just uh, to, to just explore the vastness of God's plan for humanity. And it's, it's both unique, it's overwhelming, and it's uh, so gratifying when you start connecting the dots, which he helps us do in his gospel. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And obviously exciting, because I can see all that excitement yeah. coming out yes. in yes. both your tone of voice and in the way you're expressing yourself. Can you comment on who he's originally writing to and why that affects his, the intent, how he writes his book? Well, maybe the most important thing to know about that is he is the last one to write. And so he has this vantage point to be able to know. I mean, it, we almost uh, it, it's almost a sure thing that John knew and had access to uh, Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, uh, Luke's gospel, uh, Acts from Luke, um, as well as most all of the other New Testament books, but particularly those other three gospels and Acts. He had access to those, and so he uh, he uses that. He, he He's not about saying, okay, so I'm just going to say what they said and just, um, you know, just regurgitate that information. That's not what he's about. He finishes some of those stories by giving explanations of why they happened in the Synoptic Gospels. And then sometimes, as you've already mentioned, he tells you things that aren't in the other three at all. And because he is trying to show us a different side of who who Jesus is that isn't always explored in the other three Gospels. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, no, you did. Yeah, I I just think I remember um, reading and thinking that he really, his intent is primarily to convince uh, Jews at that time that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Absolutely. So the cleansing of the temple, which is in the Cana cycle, and Jesus goes in, he cleanses the temple. Well, why does John put it there? And what, what, what is his goal? Well, he knows because Jesus says, I, you know, I'll rebuild the temple in three days, and they don't get it, and that's understandable. But what's he trying, basically trying to do to the readers who are reading it at that point, the Jews? Well, this is post-AD 70, so the temple is gone. It's been destroyed by the Romans. And so he's trying to say, so when Jesus says, it's not about, any, and he'll, he'll talk about this with a Samaritan woman, um, this, it's not about where you worship, it's about who you worship. And that is a driving theme of John's. So he tells you about that um, in, when he cleanses the temple. He tells you about that in his conversation with Nicodemus. He tells you about that in his conversation with a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. And over and over and over again, he's just driving that point home. It's not about the sign. It's not about the miracle. It's about who is doing the miracle. That's the important piece that John wants us to know. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mentioned before that I'm doing that read through the Bible in a year, and a lot of it's been in the Old Testament. And it's just amazing to me how much even a gospel comes alive when I have that Old Testament information. And those Jews who would have been familiar with the festivals, with the feast, with the temple, with the worship, with the Samaritans and their background and who they were and what their interactions with them were like, things that we don't naturally, um, you know, today in our American culture grasp. But when you have a feel for that, you recognize that, man, 
yet this story that God's been telling from the beginning is culminating in Christ. Well, one of the the little, uh, I just love this. When he's telling the story about the Samaritan woman, he says, uh, John does, he had to go through Samaria. Well, no, he didn't. He didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, almost no Jew went through Samaria. They would go miles and miles and miles out of their way not to go through Samaria. So on the one hand, he didn't have to go. And on the other hand, he absolutely had to go because that was that was God's plan for him to make that interaction and to begin that work that Matthew talks about at the end of his gospel in uh, Judea, Samaria, into the ends of the earth. Yeah, you definitely see John giving that summary with an eye to the Hebrew scripture and bringing that redemptive narrative out front, what you're talking about. Like you can see the Hebrew scriptures present. He's speaking to his Jewish audience. He's illuminating the story of the Hebrew scripture to the Gentile audience. And Mike, what you were talking about at the beginning, like he's announcing that tabernacle glory that the Jewish people were awaiting. That's that second temple. Remember, they never saw the glory of God resting on the mercy seat and they were awaiting that. And he said, but the glory is not there on the mercy seat in the tabernacle. It's the glory is Jesus, man, here with us, God with us. That's the, that's the new glory that we to, to anticipate. He's announcing the kingdom of God has come. He's saying that that God's space and man's space is once again beginning to integrate. Like I'm introducing that kingdom of God here. He's saying that Passover deliverance is here. What you're talking about those festival cycles, like there was obviously some intentionality behind Jesus orienting his crucifixion around that Passover weekend and saying that deliverance that we sit down and remember every time of year and say that God has delivered us from the pagan oppressor. He's saying, yeah, I'm doing that in a much bigger way and I'm delivering you from the evil within you as well, that sin. So, Mike, let us hear from you again. How does your perspective of Jesus change and grow every time you study John? The early church fathers called the gospel of John the spiritual gospel. And um, and I think I'm a spiritual kind of guy. I, I love that piece of uh, who I am and, and who God has made me. So I have always sort of leaned in to John more than I have the other Gospels, for that reason, I believe it just touches a particular piece for me. Um, now, one of the things that in this last go round, as I've been teaching on John and also uh, doing this overview, um, I, I do love Andreas Kostenberger's work on the Gospel of John. And uh, one of the things that I, I saw in his work that it just startled me, actually, when I when I read it, and it just really changed the paradigm for me. When you read the Synoptic Gospels and you look at the cross, what you typically see is an explanation of the shame and the humiliation that Jesus had to go through on our behalf for our sin, which is all true. What John does with the cross basically is show exaltation and joy, the joy that was set before me. Uh, I'm going to the cross. That was that was Jesus. That's what he believed, and that's what he lived out. And I think that's one of the reasons he was able to endure all that he had to endure prior to the cross itself, all of the suffering and the shame, because he knew. I, I think I mentioned it um, Sunday. It's like it. It's like the cross was a toll road for Jesus on the way back to the Father. Now it was a it was a heavy toll he had to pay, right, um, to die on the cross for us, uh, but. 
that that was just a step along the way for him. He knew where he was going. He knew where he was going before he ever came. And so just just that angle for me has um, warmed my heart uh, because it's given me an it's made uh, Jesus more personal for me and more real for me. Because sometimes it's hard for me to grasp that somebody would love me enough and endure that humiliation and that shame to die for me. But when I see it from the glory side, it just makes a lot more sense. And I can actually appreciate the other side of that more when I, when I, um, you know, when I touch or when I get a sense of uh, this other angle of his reason for coming and his reason for dying. He had that redemption plan in mind uh, way before I had any comprehension of my sin. Yeah, Amber, that's that's John fifteen. Um, I mean, um, it just you you did not choose me; I chose you, and I chose you before the foundation of the world. Um, and you have to stay connected to me. That's the whole vine and branch imagery there that he uses to say, "Look, if you want to have that life that John talks about in uh, verse thirty of chapter twenty, then you you need to stay connected to me." Your next question, the next thing I wanted to ask you is just as how is John important for our cultural moment? And when you say, if you want life, um, you've got to stay connected to me. And you think how much we want life, right? We live in a culture that wants to experience and to love and to live life and believes that the way to do that is self-actualization, becoming who I am meant to be in whatever way I think is best. In Jesus, we see humankind at its absolute best as he lives in absolute obedience to the Father. We really do receive life as we were intended to live it. So how do you think that the the themes of John resonate with our cultural moment? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that we would say, most of us would say, uh, who believe the gospel, that the Bible— is able to speak to all of the needs that we have as human beings. And and I think most of us would agree and say, yes, that's right. It does appear, though, that we are in a season in, in the West, culturally, uh, that it's getting more and more difficult um, for those to live out their faith in the gospel. And it is moving at such a rapid pace that, um, you know, we're looking for answers. People are looking for answers. Like, what, what does the Bible speak to this? Uh, what, what are we going to do? How are we going to, how are we going to um, think, process, um, live with all of the different sexual adaptations that are, that are on the cultural horizon right now? Um, and I do think that the Bible does speak to all of those things. And one of the one of the people that has helped me the most with that is uh, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. And uh, he has written a book recently called Broken Signpost that I would recommend for anyone who, who loves the gospel and wants to know, uh, does, does John, because uh, he's, he's particularly speaking about John in this book, Broken Signpost, but it's true about all of Scripture, and uh, he takes seven signposts, and, and and basically what his his thesis is is these were these were things that were meant to be lived out uh, in their fullness in in life, 
But there's a brokenness there that we know happened in Genesis 3 and has affected uh, humankind since then. And what N.T. Wright does is he has these seven. So here's that seven word again. So uh, John loves seven. Maybe N.T. Wright loves seven, too. Uh, I I don't think that was um, by accident. I think uh, N.T. was doing some work there himself on metaphor. But but they are justice, spirituality, relationship, beauty, freedom, truth, and power. And, And what he does is he works through each of those in in John. But he also works through them a bit historically uh, in the West and, and says, so what, how, have, how has the church, how has culture addressed things like justice? Justice, we hear a lot about justice today. It is not a new topic. I mean, it has been around since uh, Cain and Abel. And so maybe uh, before that, maybe Adam and Eve um, and some of the blame game thing that was going on there. Um, but justice has been around forever, and it almost seemed like in the last couple of hundred years that um, that culture in general was saying the church has nothing to say about justice. They, they can't speak into that subject. Well, that's just simply not true, and Wright does a wonderful job of taking each of these and saying, yes, the church has spoken through the scriptures, and in particular for him in this book, through the gospel of John about justice. And you can see justice issues popping up all the time in the gospel of John. Look at the trial itself. I mean, look at the injustice of what was done to Jesus, Uh, whether that's by Pilate, whether that's by Herod, whether it's by the Jewish leaders. it's It's just a travesty of injustice that's going on there. Maybe the greatest injustice uh, that's ever happened in the world. And so Wright is helpful in looking at all of those issues, uh, spirituality, relationships, beauty. All of those things are important to us as human beings. And the gospel has something to say about those. And so, yes, it can speak into sexuality. Yes, it can speak in to all sorts of issues, economic issues, justice issues, um, because the, the framework of the gospel gives us a path forward of realizing all of those as close as is possible on this side um, of heaven, what they were meant to be and how to live those out in ways that make life more fruitful. So tell us what has surprised or delighted you as you study the book of John once more. Well, again, I, um, I love some of the contrast that John shows us in his gospel. So for example, I'm blown away by by the contrast of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Um, he John intentionally places those two stories back to back in John three and John four, and what he what he wants us to see, I think, uh, one of the things that he wants us to see is the difference between the two. So Nicodemus obviously is a man, uh, the Samaritan woman is a female. Uh, he is a learned person. Um, we don't know much about her. Uh, he understands and knows the scriptures. She is more into folklore and that sort of thing. Um, and so John takes these different aspects of these two stories and these two people and shows what that looks like spiritually. So uh, Nicodemus comes at night. Um, the woman at the well, she's there in at noon, so in the middle of the day. Um, what, 
Both. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the things that John, that's just surprisingly wonderful for me is the way he talks about, so we don't know ultimately where Nicodemus was spiritually. I mean, we can we could surmise that because he was with Joseph of Arimathea at the burial of Jesus, that that he got it at some point. But we don't know that. Every other indication we have is that he did not. That John makes a point of that. Wants us to know that um, you know he he doesn't he. You must be born again. Well, am I going to go back into my mother's womb? Uh, he he just in 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 an interesting thing too about. John's dialogue here, the way he portrays it is, the more Jesus says, the less Nicodemus says in in the story. The more Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, the more she talks. In fact, he just kind of goes off into the night. She goes into town, starts telling everybody about Jesus. And, you know, she has a lot to hide, right? I mean, he has a lot to hide. You talked about shame. She has a lot to hide, you know, she doesn't have a, a, a sparkling past, and yet he has done something in her soul that has freed her up to a degree that she does not care anymore about hiding. And so that's that whole light-darkness theme you get in John and in his letters and even in Revelation that's so powerful about what the gospel is in terms of light and how it exposes the darkness and how it frees people up. And so John will, Jesus will say later in John, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, she was free. One of the things that D.A. Carson mentioned as well that's unique about John is how much he highlights the fact that people didn't get it. Nobody got it. You know, his disciples didn't get it. The Samaritan woman initially didn't get it. Nicodemus didn't get it. Everybody that comes to him has a misunderstanding, a misconception of who he is. And that's the whole point of self-revelation, of his self-revelation is to bring light where there's only darkness. And I think that's encouraging to us because no matter if you're a learned religious type of person like Nicodemus, or if you're somebody who with a sordid past, it doesn't understand a lot of things like the Samaritan woman or whoever it would be, you we can acknowledge we're blind. We come into these things blind, and yet the Lord reveals his light to us. No matter what the cause of our blindness is, he came, he spoke to Nicodemus. He had a lot to say to the Pharisees. He had just as much compassion and intention to reveal himself to them as he did to sinners and tax collectors. And the ways he did it was different, and their responses at times were different. But his willingness to reveal himself is just amazing. So I think as we go in to studying John, can we say to ourselves, we're going to have misconceptions, you know, whether we've known Jesus or of Jesus for a long time, or whether we're just coming to know Jesus, there are things that the book of John is going to challenge in us. And that's good news for us. That's um, salvation for us. That's life for us. So what are some of those things that you think, you know, maybe be aware that in some ways you're going to be challenged. You may think about Jesus like this, but he's going to show you something different. Well, certainly the first one that I mentioned earlier is just John's ability to show us a different side of the way Jesus understood the cross, which I think is very, very helpful. Another one is um, this idea of love. Uh, John is a big 
you know, he's a big proponent of love, talks a lot about it, obviously, in, in all of the books that he wrote. Um, but to the extent that uh, we're able to love like Jesus, then we learn how to live life in a way that is really connected to him. So in John 13, for example, when um, when he's when there it's the upper room discourse, and uh, so he's going to wash the disciples' feet, which just you know bothers Peter to no end because he 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 hasn't quite come of age, and um, so what Jesus shows them there is uh, just a profound lesson and shows us a profound lesson about what it means to lead in life. In whatever context you lead in, that might be parenting, it might be, you know, in your career, it might be in the church, but he he sets the tone for how leadership is successful from a godly standpoint, from a kingdom perspective, from a gospel perspective. And uh, I think that is absolutely seminal to not only the church— um, operating in a in a helpful, godly, kingdom-oriented, gospel way, grace-driven, mercy-providing way, but also just the the world around us. And um, so, I, I think that's a, a startling piece of advice that he gives to his disciples, but also to us. And that's um, I, I'm not going to treat you uh, like servants. I'm going to treat treat you like friends. Dr. Mike Phillips, thank you so much for being here today. A pastor, professor, boss, dare I say friend, (laughs) MVP. MVP, those are his initials if you didn't know that. Thank you for um, just a challenging encouragement and just bringing your wisdom to the table. I think that's been such a piece, uh, a big piece of seminary for me is just getting that cultural context, getting thought from other professors that are years in study down the road for me and just helping me have um, more of a love for the scripture, more of a worship of our Lord. So thank you for being here today. Listeners, we hope you'll join us again next week. Let us keep you company while you're driving around in your 1968 burnt orange Camaro or yes. while you're organizing your pantry. Our lead pastor, Dr. Mike Heron, and his wife, Sandra, will be with us next week as we talk about John and his beautiful introduction to Jesus. We hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord who rises with healing in His wings. When comforts are declining, He grants the soul again a season of pure shining to cheer it after the rain.